0: Just to set the scene quickly then, Acts 4, we saw last week that after a really successful start to the church's life following Pentecost, saw wonderful things happen, 3,000 people added to the church uh, and then another tranche of thousands of people added after a miracle. Things really seemed to be going well and then they hit a sort of brick wall really of opposition from the authorities. And a very significant crisis develops quite quickly and is uh, recorded for us in Acts 4 in the first part of the chapter. Peter and John, who are sort of the leaders of the disciples, are hauled in before the Sanhedrin. And actually they go through a very, very difficult 24 hours. I wonder if us we've ever had very difficult 24 hours. I'm sure we all have. Where suddenly everything goes, goes wrong, really. We might hear we're redundant. We might hear... Um, a medical report that must have happened, for example, to our brother Ray, just that suddenly everything, you hear, woof! Or maybe you hear some news uh, a family situation or maybe it's just a lot of difficult things all come together. Maybe it's not one big bit of news. And it was a bit like that. They'd first of all been hauled in. Now, you've got to get your imagination going when you look at the Bible that Peter and John, to us, they are like famous, right? Everybody, there's millions of little boys called John. Here's one, I'm John. There's millions of little boys called Peter, you know, blah, blah, blah. They've got statues all over the Western world and churches and stuff. At this point, these were Galilean fishermen. Now, only a few months earlier, when Peter had denied Jesus, one of the things people said is, we know you come where you come from. We tell by you way you speak. You're Galilean. You've got to think of people from rural Hampshire, or maybe from the north of England somewhere, from, from um, the Manchester area or from the Yorkshire area, who are now in the city of London and not actually naturally fit there, hauled in before, as I said last week, some sort of combination of, of maybe um, high court judges and bishops and, and perhaps even government ministers. Because this Sanhedrin of 71 are the highest sort of body in the land in terms of Israel. Alright, the Roman occupation forces are there but these guys really call the shots for Israel. And Peter and John are hauled in by them and, and they're just uh, told and they, they handle it wonderfully, as we saw last week. But they're essentially intimidated and challenged and told, you're not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And actually, just to soften them up, they spend a night in jail. That's why I call it 24 hours. While a uh, Sanhedrin decide what to do with them, they put them in jail for a, a night. The Sanhedrin have been responsible for crucifying Jesus or making sure he was crucified or putting him forward to the Romans as a a case for crucifixion. And so they are not uh, people to be messed about with. They're a rather scary bunch of men. And they come out of there having been told they are not to speak about Jesus at all. The whole thing that they're about, they mustn't do it. So what happens? Let's read from verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Let's Actually, that's my reading, but let's just keep our eyes on the passage. Look what happened next. All the believers were one in heart and mind. They began to share their goods. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify, continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. Let's even go forward, just down your eye, to chapter 5 and verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders amongst the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Great effect, just want to catch a sense of that. What we're actually going to focus on is just verses 23 to 31 this morning. I believe God wants to speak to us out of this passage and I'm going to do it just by a number of themes that really God's just put on my heart as I was preparing for this. As I said, it had been a very difficult 24 hours. So the first thing I want you to really notice, every last one of you notice this please, what did Peter and John do when they hit problems? Peter and John hit enormous problems, dreadful 24 hours, real roadblock on what they felt God had called them to do. Now, they, they, they knew that God was saying keep going, but it was pretty intimidating and scary and it looked like uh, everything was coming off the rails. So what did they do? Let's look quickly. Three things that I think are very important. First of all, they went back to their own people. Verse 23. They went back to their own people. Now, just listen to me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers, those of you who are in this church, Winchester Family Church, the church is their own people. I told you these were Galileans. They didn't go back to Galilean people or Nazarenes. There's still a major, there's a major mixture. In fact, apart from the 120 that started off, and they weren't all close mates naturally at all. We've now got at least 3,000, isn't it? Another 5,000 added. We've got thousands of people becoming Christians. Just imagine it. Imagine our situation. But they are seen as their people. Listen, whatever your background, the church is now your own people. This is the family of God. The church. And particularly, the community to which you are joined and you belong. And when you hit problems, the first place... To look for help is amongst your own people. Peter and John did not just go away in a corner and hide or they went back to the church. The church has always been people. It is not buildings, it is not institutions, it's not structures, it's not systems, it's our people. These are our people, you are my people. Did you hear, I think it's great just to hear the heart of someone. Did you hear Brian's heart when he looked round at us? Brian Jones doesn't know all of you. Some of you probably hardly know who Brian is. But he knows, he knows some of you very well. But he knows this is his people. When, when he was facing life-threatening things, he knew who he wanted to be near him, who he wanted to be praying for him. They went back to their own people. Do you know that's why we have things like community groups and stuff like that? You know, sometimes we know there's a structure. If you hit problems, you need your own people. You need the church. And you need to have engaged with your church so that you're ready and easily able to go and ask for help. When we hit problems, trouble, persecutions, disappointments, the place to run to is our own people. Don't run from the church when you hit problems. Run to the church. And actually, we are not, in our English way, very good at that. Now, you can say... We, we throw up all the practical issues. I know, I can almost hear them in my spirit. Why well, it's not so easy. Look, I'm not even telling you that it's got to be always, the the, the say, the formal arrangements. Well, they're a net to try and help it work. But somewhere in the body of Christ are the people you need when you hit problems. And the idea that when you hit problems, you don't go to church is madness. I'm not talking about anything to do with pressures and, you know, a bit busy or something. I'm talking about the people that get back and withdraw when they hit problems. That's not the answer. The answer is you go to your own people. Then look what they did. The next verse, oh, the same verse, 23. It says, they reported all that had happened. Just want the phrase, secondly, they reported all. We are endeavouring in church, we must endeavour to build quality relationships where we can actually share the real issues. Peter and John were not reluctant to tell them all the problems they hit. Now, I know this was a fairly public challenge, but actually what they did was they unburdened to the people. They didn't, even as leaders, and I find this instructive, they didn't feel that they had to have it all right before they shared it. They just went in and said, we have hit big problems. This is what's happened. and We've been told this, and we, you know, we're just confused, maybe scared. We know we've got to do what Jesus told us to do, but it looks very scary. Now, I don't know what words they use. They're modern words I've used, but I doubt if it was massively different because they just went and shared with their own people what was going on. I think it's important that we need to be able to do that and willing to do it is probably half the battle. We need to have relationships with brothers and sisters that allow us to do it. I trust and pray that often our small groups are facilitating that. Because often they give us a sort of, a bit of, as I said, a substance to it, a bit of structure to it, so we can actually organise help, literally. Uh, Because often it's physical help's needed, maybe some meals cooked or visiting, And so actually you do need it a bit organised. But however it works, it's got to work. You need to be able to share your problems with your brothers and sisters, Now, obviously, this one might have been a very big public one, but the principle is the same even for the the sort of more uh, personal things. But you still need to report it all, not just little bits of it, but share your heart and say, this is what I am facing. And thirdly, they raise their voices together in prayer to God. Basically, Christians pray together about problems when you hit them. When you hit problems, you need to go to the church, to Christian brothers and sisters, to share your heart, share your battles, and you need to pray together. This is not merely about friendship, though that's good. It's not merely about having a listening ear, though that's good. It's actually about praying together. Do you see there's some very profound truth here? Simple but profound. God has provided means of grace, ways in which he helps us. One of them is the Bible. There are many of them. But one big one is the church fellowship, the koinonia of the church. It's one of the ways God helps you. We help one another. The Spirit of God is in us helping one another. And this is a very simple but real little pattern. When we hit the, the difficulty... We go to our own people, we unburden, we report it all, and we pray together. Simple but wonderful. And I know many of you know it's wonderful because that's what happens. That's what we do when, when we hear bad news, when there's big tussles and difficulties. It is our starting point that we pray together. Jesus said, when two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, by the way, he said this to his disciples, So it's talking about those who are followers of Jesus. When two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. It's pretty good, isn't it? Matthew 18, verse 19. We need to pray together. We need prayers of agreement. Let's get together. Let's pray about that non-Christian husband, that non-Christian wife who there's a battle. Let's pray about that difficulty at work, that sickness, that, that practical tussle with the kids, that thing that's burning us up. Don't let's be frightened of people knowing that we're struggling in our parenting or struggling perhaps in one aspect of our life, work or marriage or just frightened about what the doctor's going to say. Don't let's be too British. Let's be kingdom of God. Let's, let's go to our own people. Let's unburn, report it, report it all and pray together. Amen? It's as simple and as profound as that. And that is the core of real church that's the core of real church and real fellowship but we're also going to learn a bit about those prayers now we're going to look at the nature of prayer their pr- nature of their prayer and then a little bit on the effect of their prayer so I want to talk about the nature of their prayer first of all there was unity to their prayer verse 24 they raised their voices together in prayer now here's another interesting and important truth we learn from here from the early church that praying together was a way of life what we call corporate prayer already we're only a few months into church history and you can see it keeps happening acts 1 verse 14 acts 1 verse 24 and probably on the day of Pentecost acts 2:1 they are praying together as a group acts 2:42 tells us the sort of foundational elements of church life. And it says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And, of course, we can come with our Western modern mindset and assume that means they all had little quiet times, that was the Word of God, and they all had little quiet prayer times on their own. Now, I'm sure they did pray on their own, but actually this is a corporate thing. They didn't have a New Testament. It's not been written yet. They did have an Old Testament. They're listening to the teaching live from Peter, John and the others. They're receiving Apostles' doctrine teaching that we now have written down. And therefore, it's good for us to do what we're doing this morning, to be in a group around the Word of God. This isn't all individualism. But interesting, the word prayer could be translated prayer meeting. Michael Green says that in his commentary on Acts. He says you could could, and perhaps should translated it prayer meeting. They devoted themselves to gathering together to pray. That's not to say they didn't pray on their own, but it is to say that when they talk about prayer, 99% of the time they're thinking corporate prayer. Now we need to understand praying together is a foundational part of church life and it has been since the beginning. It's one of the foundations of Christianity. And here in 4:24, chapter 424, when they hit a crisis, of course they pray together. They unite their heart, they unite their voice and they pray. Now, our church life must be fully involving corporate prayer. Not just big meetings, but smaller ones as well, but not just individual prayer. In other words, in our community groups, in all sorts of groups, youth groups, 18s, 20s, we need to be quick to pray together. But when we, as we do this week, have opportunities to gather together and pray, That is very, very important. We probably don't have enough, but we've got some this week. Enough opportunities, that is. We've got some this week. We've got tonight, 7 till 9, when we're going to be worshipping it and praying about the church, probably the bigger picture and some overseas stuff. Wednesday, when we're going to gather together, 7.30 to about 9.30 to pray for ourselves, lots of our own ministry, probably pray for the sick amongst us. Friday, when we've got longer, we're going to gather for some... Oh no, sorry, Thursday is very important. Thursday, when we've got Rose sort of leading a more family time of prayer. That doesn't mean some of you without children don't come. You can come, but it is geared time-wise to the fact that families and children will come and therefore it's 6 o'clock to 7.30, for example, and it's got a pizza to start with, which is quite an attraction, isn't it? So, you know, it's a family feel thing, but it's not by any means exclusive only if you've got children. Obviously, many will be still working at that time. So it's a different sort of target audience, but it's us again praying. And that's Thursday. And then Friday, we've got the early morning one which goes on every Friday actually, which Neil leads, six till seven, but that's every Friday anyway, but that's happening this Friday. And then in the evening we start at seven thirty with cake and coffee because we let people come in as they come in from busy days. But actually we're looking for a whole evening, about eight o'clock to about eleven we'll finish by eleven of worship of, of the theme is for all you've done and all you've yet to do. Thanking God, celebrating what he's done. I repeatedly am amazed at all sorts of things. that I can think, that's amazing what God's done. And Jeff and I have been giving a little extra thought to some of these prayer meetings recently. And even on Friday, we were chatting together. And, and Jeff has got a greater knowledge of what's happened over the years in this church than I have. And So there will be a thanksgiving element, big time. But then we also want to look at the year ahead and, and, and some of the things that God's calling us to and pray together on that. And we also want to break bread together towards the end. So we're integrating it with worship. But these are wonderful opportunities for us to get together, unite our hearts, unite our voices and pray. Amen? And when we're doing that, we are doing something very, very biblical. So they were united in their prayer. Secondly, there was worship and adoration in their prayer. If you look at verse 24, they start with looking at God. Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven, the earth, the sea and everything in them. They didn't start their prayer with a list of requests. They gloried in the greatness of God. Sovereign Lord means despotes, or is the word despotes, which means the sole ruler of all things. The unchangeable king of all kings and lord of all lords. That's brilliant. They started reminding themselves that their God was the ruler of all. He was king of every other king and lord of every other lord. Isn't that a good way to start? Actually, they do some wonderful... I'm just going to quickly draw your attention to it because it's instructive for us as we gather this evening and actually as we worship this morning when I finish because this is part of our week of prayer. It's, it's focusing on the God we pray to. That he is the God of creation. There's three little phrases you can pick up here. I couldn't resist it. A little mini sermon. They said, You made, you spoke, you decided. They remind themselves he is the God of creation. You made everything. The God we speak to made all things. He is the God of revelation. You spoke. God's not up there, distant, a watchmaker, wound it up, walked away and all that stuff. He is a a God who is near us. He knows all about us. Our hearts unveiled before him, we sang this morning. Well, that's true. He knows our thoughts and he still loves us. But he actually speaks to us in a number of ways. He speaks through his word. He's a God of revelation through history. But he will speak to us this week. Come open to the Holy Spirit. Come expecting to have prophetic words. Come expecting just God to meet you. He's here with us. He's more eager than we are. And he's a God who speaks. That was their understanding. You're the God who made everything, but you're the God who spoke. And Lord, we need you to speak again. But they also said, you decided on history. Verse 28. They said, Lord, you are the God of history. In other words, listen, he is a God who intervenes. Unashamedly, I believe in an interventionist God. Now that embarrasses even some Christians, particularly the more intellectual, Western-minded sort of frame, and all that de- 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 deism and all the rest of it. Let's brush it aside. Our God intervenes in history. Okay? He intervenes in big things, like this is about really, Jesus, but he intervenes in your history and my history, He intervenes in our story, using that modern phrase. He intervenes in the big story and he intervenes in the little story. That's why it's so exciting to pray, because God acts in history. The God who once spoke is deciding and operating in the world we're living in. That's what they understood. They understood the God they spoke to was the creator, was a God of revelation and was a God of history. And their history particularly was a God who was intervening. Now, that is our God. That's the way to pray, focusing first and foremost on God and his character. We will do that. Unashamedly, we'll worship. Unashamedly, we'll take time out to spend time worshipping and praising God. That's part of what we do. Next, their prayer was informed with scripture. And you find that from verses 25 and 26. They actually quote Old Testament scriptures, which is the one they had, of course. Why do they do that? Because quoting what God has said gives you confidence that you're on track with what you're asking him. And so when we pray this week, we need to be very scripture-based. Can I encourage you to come along expecting God to give you a reading to share? to to bring something from the Scriptures in in any of our prayer meetings. Don't leave it for John Groves to come up with a Scripture, or maybe Dave Thompson. But come yourself, sensitive. So you might have a prophetic word, but you might have a, a, a Scripture which just gives direction to our prayer. That's what they did. Their prayer was informed with Scripture, because that meant that they would be more confident of praying in the will of God. It gave them faith. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. So to to root what you bring in Scripture is always helpful and it's always the right way. Let's do that this week. There was, fourthly, expectancy to their prayer. Verse 29 and 30. I love this. They clearly assumed and expected that God knew all about their situation and would do something about it. They say, now, Lord, consider their threats. They like talk to him, don't they? In a way, you, you can lose the impact of that. It's, it's quite intimate. They say, God, we've been sharing. I mean, basically, Peter and John have been sharing. These guys have threatened us with imprisonment, maybe death, I don't know. They've threatened us if we keep talking. And, and they sort of like, bring God into the conversation. Lord, consider their threat. God, I mean, what they don't do is dictate exactly what God should do, which is quite interesting. They don't actually tell him what he's got to do, but hear this, brothers and sisters, they expect he's going to do something. Do you expect God's going to do something when we pray? Well, I hope you do, and I do absolutely. That's great, because I do agree. Now, let's all be like that, because that was the mindset of the early church. It was like, Lord, you see what we're facing. We need you to do something. Now, I think that expectancy should be all through our church life, actually, but particularly through our times of prayer, particularly whether they're in the small group or whether they're, as this week, in the opportunities to gather together. God, we need you to act now. And as I've already hinted, it's a sub-point, really, it's the same point, with their expectancy, there went an openness. Now, get that, an openness that God would do what he would need to do. They don't actually dictate much to God. Are we open to God doing what God wants to do? Now, in this incident, the first thing God did was shook the building, verse 31. Now, I don't think they necessarily expected the building to be shook. This was very early days in the church, and even on the day of Pentecost, there had been a, a furious sound of a wind Blowing, hadn't there? So they might have said, "I wonder if we'll get the old wind one again." So, you know, we're the wind church. Mind you, you, have to be careful how you put that, wouldn't you? But you know, I wonder if we'll get the old wind. Maybe it be the old tongues of fire. And Neil will get a flame on his head. Ooh. actually, that didn't happen. The building shook. Now, now you, we can say, "Oh, that's interesting." Academically, read it. But actually, that's quite a scary. But it's also quite interesting that it wasn't a, what happened before just wasn't what I am before, it's just a fact. So actually, God does stuff and he doesn't always repeat what he did last time. So God doesn't always quite turn up the same way you expect. And you've just got to be ready for that. I mean, we, you might have awesome silence. Now, some of you say, oh, praise God. But I don't mean dead silence like you can find in any old mausoleum type building. I mean just where the presence of God is heavy on everybody. We might have everybody just shouting out or everybody just... Ra- some of the commentators on this building shock business, they get it very interesting because some of them are quite liberal and stuff and I read all sorts of commentaries. And some of them said we don't know whether this was a, what was the phrase, a subjective shaking or an objective. Basically, did the real building shake or did they just feel like it shook? And was it an earthquake that shook a lot of other buildings? It's all quite an interesting idea, isn't it? But... It's probably a bit of a waste of pen and ink to write, but as far as they were concerned, it shook. They prayed, and boy, God turned up. I prefer Mr. Matthew Henry's phrase. He said they they experienced a sensible token of the presence of God. Now, sensible is not like you think it means. You think sensible means all very. Safe. It means of the senses. Aha, I just need to give you an English lesson there because he wrote that 350, 300 years ago and they didn't use words the same way, but I like the way they use words. I pray for some sensible tokens of the presence of God, don't you? Sensible tokens, but don't put him in a box and assume the sensible token will be the same as the last sensible token. Perhaps you've never had a sensible token. Maybe you'll get a sensible token this week. I pray we do. I pray we do. Let's go on. They, five, they were clear and specific petitions in their prayers. They were clear and specific about what they wanted. They didn't just waffle around and throw all loads of things out. Actually, their requests are very limited. They're, they're focused on two things, just two clear requests. One is, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's verse 29. And that, by the way, before we move on, the other one, I'll tell you what it is. You probably work it out for yourself. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Well, let's just pause on both those for a moment because they're big, big, big petitions. They're important ones. Their first request was, listen again, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Now this is a classic New Testament prayer that I confess I and the vast majority of Christians in the world today don't seem to quite notice. (laughs) In the New Testament, if you can find a prayer, prayer where they pray, bind the authorities, make them be nice to us, or something like that, bring it and show me. If you can find a prayer, and this one is even more challenging, please save all the people in Corinth, or in Jerusalem, or save my auntie or uncle. I'm not saying we can't pray these prayers. I'm going out on a limb here. But if you can find a prayer like that, also bring it to me. Now, we're not going to be legalistic. Of course we can pray for the authorities to change their mind. Of course we can pray for our, uh, our friends to be saved, and for the people who winch to be saved. And we will actually do that. But it is quite challenging that their main requests are not that, they're this. Give us boldness to speak the truth. Now, that is fascinating. And you will find it again and again when you look, touch prayers in the New Testament. You can look, for example, we're not going to do it because of time. You might look at it in our prayer one of the nights. Ephesians 6, verses 19 to 20. You will find Paul praying, pray that I have boldness, that I can speak when an opportunity comes that I speak. Basically, that's what he asked them to pray. Listen, brothers and sisters, and I listen, John Groves, to your own words, which I can do. Listen. We need to pray, just pray, God, give me the courage to speak about you. Just give me opportunities and give me boldness. Why do we only need to pray that? Because the sense of New Testament faith is if I get a chance to speak it, it will happen. God's word will not return to him empty. That if I speak, people will get saved. Because, you know, the entrance of his word brings light, faith comes by hearing the word. In other words, the big problem is me being stopped from speaking. That's the big problem. Now, that's the big problem they had. But it was an external one more than an internal one, although, of course, it generated fear, was that they were just being shut up and told not to speak. Now, actually, they said the thing we need to pray for is that we'll speak. Because once we speak, stuff's going to happen. God's promised that. So the thing we need to pray is, God, give me opportunities and the courage to take them. Now, actually, that is a very New Testament approach to prayer requests. You can see it if you read carefully several incidents in New Testament. But they also pray, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Isn't that an interesting prayer? I think it's right to pray for signs and wonders. I don't remotely believe they're supposed to have ceased with the uh, writing of the New Testament or something and all these other funny ideas. I'm not a cessationist. I believe we're in the same era as they were in. It started then. It's still going on until Jesus comes back. And they clearly saw this as an important element of their gospel. That the the kingdom of God was words, works, and wonders. And it is still words, works, and wonders. And they prayed for the divine intervention. And that was courageous because the miracle of the healing of the guy at the Gate Beautiful is what had provoked all this stuff that was happening. And they said, Lord, we want more miracles. Don't let us be scared about miracles. Can I pray? Don't be scared about miracles signs and wonders. Let's pray for it. Let's pray, oh God, stretch out your hand and perform signs and wonders. Amen? And we'll pray that. We'll pray that this week. Oh God, would you do it? Would you do it amongst us and for us and give us power signs to impact the culture around us? Our culture is in such a state, it will need some power signs. It will need some some things that just break people's paradigms open, change their worldviews, just shake them. Woo, you know that about me. There's some lot of interesting things going on. I know the healing on the streets is going on here, which is good. Maybe we need to get into it more as we can, if we can, this year. But also, the stuff going on, I know Flick came back from her Frontier Project stuff talking about it. I'd heard it elsewhere, this sort of thing about treasure hunting. I won't get into it now, but where people go out on the street think about it and pray about it, get words of knowledge and then go out in the street and sort of find the people. <laughs> you know, they get a word for a, a lady called Susan at the bus station with the black coat. They see a lady with a black coat at the bus station. They go, and say, are you Susan? She said, well, I am actually. I mean, that encourages your faith. He you said, oh, God's told us that you've got, you know, maybe something, sickness that you want praying for. Maybe you've got something wrong with you and we're to pray for you. I think, I think that does get people's attention, that... that I mean, there's loads of good stories, and there's loads of ones where it didn't quite work. You've got to learn. But it's quite exciting. And most people aren't that offended if she says, no, actually, I'm Mary. You say, oh, sorry, I'm looking for a Susan with a black coat. You could even maybe get into a conversation with her. We have people from the church, and we feel God puts things on our hearts just for, to bless people and to pray for them. And, and she might say, oh, that's interesting, even though she's Mary. You see what I mean? It's not going to really upset them much, unless they're really weird people, and there are a few weirds about. But, but actually... It's it's exciting, and it's just that element of sign and wonder, breakthrough. I mean, there's some very good stories coming out of it. We'll have to come back to it again. I think it's an exciting thing that's going on, but certainly there's more even than that. Signs and wonders are part of the package. Right, let's move on to the effect of their prayer. And this is only three points. So we've looked at the nature of their prayer. Clear, specific petitions was what I was looking at, just to remind you. Uh, the petition of enable us to speak boldly and stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. That were their, that, those were their two clear petitions on this occasion. Now, let's look at the effect of their prayer. One, the prayer opened the door for fresh vision and fresh anointing. And that you sort of get as you look at uh, what happens afterwards, really, which I sort of read for you quickly, But even in verse 31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word boldly. Now, I think this is very important. They did know what they were called to do. It wasn't they got a whole lot of new ideas. Can I say to you, we don't need that many new ideas. We know what we're called to do. We know the sort of church we're meant to be. And we know lots of things like about this year that God's clearly called us to the Just Ten thing and, and, and just to be what we are in many other ways. We just need fresh vision and fresh anointing to do it. So they, did, they, they knew they'd got to share the gospel. They knew they'd got to see miracles in the name of Jesus. And they knew that that Great Commission wasn't, compromise, you know, wasn't to be compromised. And they got all sorts of challenges to doing it. But their prayer and the effect of their prayer was they had fresh vision and fresh power to do what they were called to do. And if you draw a little parallel, and we haven't got time to do it, with Acts 2, you can see it's very similar effect to Pentecost, but it's not the same. They didn't have the tongues of flame. It's like a refreshing of what God had already done with them. And the actual detail of their church life, which comes out at the end of the chapter, verses, say here, chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, for example, is very similar to the end of chapter 2, in many ways, verses 42 to about 47. In other words, it refreshed what they knew. It re-established their enthusiasm to share things together and to be the body of Christ. And it refreshed their determination to go out and share the gospel, which is what they did. They spoke the word of God boldly. The apostles continued, verse 33, to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They rediscovered their energy, faith and enthusiasm for what they knew they had to do. That is what I want us to do when we pray together. Praying together has the effect of refreshing your vision and re-anointing you for what God's called you to do. We're not coming looking for a lot of novelties this week, but we are looking for a fresh vision and a fresh anointing on us to be what we're called to be as a church, what we're called to be as individuals too, with sharing the gospel. What we know God's got in plan for us, we know what he's doing in many ways, it's just we need a fresh anointing for it and a fresh vision for it. That's what came out of their prayer. Can I actually say that if... They needed another filling with the Holy Spirit following the day of Pentecost. It's quite possible we could do with one, isn't it? You think, blow me, they needed that. They just had their socks blown off a few months earlier. Well, their heads, their hair burnt off or something. I don't know what happened. And, and the tongues of flame. And, and suddenly they need it all over again. <laughs> well, they did. And they're refilled with the Holy Spirit. So this isn't a one off thing, is it? It's you go on being filled. And they're filled afresh, so do we need to be. Actually, when you begin to look at the New Testament, I must be careful because there's lots of times to preach on this, but quite often that's what happens out of prayer. In Acts 10, Peter is praying when he has the vision of the sheet with all the different animals and Jesus says to him, eat these animals. And he says, oh no, I couldn't do that, Lord. It's a very strange vision and Dave Devnish really helped me to understand it when I was in India. When he preached on it. But just to, we'll get to that in a moment, because you wonder what that's about. But just before we get there, I want you to notice that Peter was praying when God spoke. Now, please listen carefully. I've got long. But what happened was that actually they, for all their spark and whiz, they were not doing what they were supposed to do. They weren't. They were failing to go to the Gentiles. They were doing quite well by Acts 10, but only modestly well. They're not a great success story. Yeah, sure, they're seeing thousands of Jews saved. And sure, they're, they're now being persecuted and scattered a bit. But they're not yet going to the nations. They are not going to the Gentiles. They're not doing what Jesus specifically told them to do. I think we can get like that. Now, in prayer... God can do some business with Peter to say, Peter, get up and do what you're meant to do, which is what that vision is about. Now, the Dave Devnish bit, which I think is very interesting, is why did he get this crazy vision of a big sheet with loads of animals in it? Well, for the Jews, it was a very big deal what you ate. They had kosher food and it would be a total offence, as it was to Peter in the vision, to eat this sort of food. But as Dave Devnish carefully taught, if you can't eat people's food, you will have problems sharing the gospel with them. Because actually, you have to sit with them, as Peter was later going to do, in Cornelius' house, and you have to talk to them and you have to engage with them where they are. If you won't eat all the things they eat and won't touch anything unless it's absolutely kosher in the literal sense of the word, you have a massive block to taking the gospel to them. So although the vision is strange to our eyes, it was very appropriate because God was getting hold of Peter's attention and saying, look, Peter, you're going to have to eat stuff you never dreamt of. Get out there, do it and tell them the gospel. Now, actually, that is brilliant and that's true. And we need to hear it. We know what we've got to do. Sometimes in our prayer, God says, you're not really doing it, are you? Get up and do what I've told you to do. Now, I think God may say that to us this week. I'm not even prejudging because I don't want to do that. How and what? But I think God wants to shake up some of our ideas and some of our thoughts. That happened in prayer. As I say, I mustn't over preach it because it's, it's Acts 10. But, but I want you to have that expectancy for this week. Fresh vision, fresh anointing. Prayer changes things. It changed things. Here in Acts 4 and 5, God answered their prayers. And gave them fresh boldness. They spoke the word of God boldly. Look at again uh, verse um, 12 of the next chapter, Acts 5, verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. Their prayer were answered. Their prayers were answered. The problem became an opportunity for God to break in and empower them. I pray for that this, this week for us and for this year. We're going to try and focus more on prayer meetings this year. We, in the first half of the year, I, I probably need to share this in more detail on Friday evening, I think, but we're not going to have encounter meetings in this first half of the year. We're going to have one major church prayer meeting a month. There will often be another thing, whether it be a church family meeting or, a, or even a, a celebration, Mission Winchester or Wessex. So there be. But the rest of the Sundays, until after J. John, we want to leave them free for people to have time to have a little bit of space in their week so they can have time to engage with non-Christian friends and and, and, and make a little bit of a friendship thing. We're also trying to focus everything missional for um, for this year. We've got to think that through and be much more missional in everything we do. And we just need a little bit of space. And we felt God just talked with the team. We just felt that it was okay to stop for a season. I'm sure we'll do things on Sunday evenings later in the year. But at the moment, we're just easing that up. What we're not easing up on is prayer. We want to have one major prayer meeting a month and really get to do some business with God on lots of things, things specifically like some of the Just 10 stuff, like some of the, the healing things that are challenging. But that's more detail on Friday. But what I want to, to say is that prayer changes things. Prayer really does change things. It can bring a difference, enormous difference, to the situations we're facing and the things we're concerned about. Finally, and I've already anticipated this one, prayer is the gateway to spiritual power. When they prayed, the place was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And as we read through the verses following... They had the power to witness, the power to give to one another. There was miraculous generosity. It wasn't just uh, speaking the word of God. There were miraculous healings, as we've already seen. Their lives were changed because they'd prayed together. And in dear old Matthew Henry's phrase, they had a sensible tokens of the presence of God with them. After they'd prayed, notice that, after they'd prayed, they had sensible tokens. Now, Uh, You know, uh, and these things happen. We can't short-circuit the way God works. We can't dictate what's going to happen. We want the building shaken. We want fire on our heads. No, no. We come and we pray. But be expectant that prayer is a gateway to spiritual power. That God will do things. The place will be shaken. And this wasn't just the apostles. It says they all spoke. They were Sorry, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They all spoke the word of God boldly. Much grace was upon them all. Verse 33. This was all the people experiencing stuff. It wasn't just Peter and John. They were all in the building when it shook. They all were filled with the Holy Spirit. They all spoke the word of God boldly. Great grace was on them all. Amen? Don't miss the prayer meetings. It's for all of us. It's not just for the leaders or for the few, you know. We, we all need this anointing. We all need to be filled with the Spirit. Great grace on us all. Let's look for some of that as we pray this week. Sensible tokens of the presence of God. Let's look for a sense that God is amongst us. Something happening to us, changing us. Amen? Amen. Now, as I close, and, and the musicians perhaps can come up while I'm doing this, because we're going to worship God. I just want to read you a verse in 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, just while they find their way up here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, are a couple of verses that we feel are a particular sort of theme for the week. Now, we're not going to keep rather sort of um, systematically coming back to this at all. It's, It's going to be touched on tonight but in a way it sets a tone for the week or a theme for the week because 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10 tells us what a special people we are, the church. Let's just read it for a moment. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now that's a wonderful summary of what it is to be a Christian. We are part of a people. These are our own people. And they're the people we get together with and pray with. And we are the people who hold the key to this nation being changed, to this city being changed. We and the other believers, but we are a key part of that. It's the people of God who are called to be the light of the world. Honestly, Jesus said that. And if we aren't the light, there isn't any light. I just feel prompted, honestly feel just uh, prompted to take a pause for a moment and it's if you're not a Christian this morning, this, these verses tell you some of the wonderful things about being a Christian. To be a Christian is to belong to God. To know God as your Father. To belong to God. It's to come out of the dark into the light. Now that's really about spiritual darkness. Confusion. And there's a lot of that around. People think, what do I believe? What's right? What's wrong? You know, we're living in a culture which is very humanistic, very atheistic in many ways. Look, There is a God and he loves you and he wants you to know him. And you can come into the light this morning by putting faith in Jesus Christ. By saying, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Saviour. I want you as the light of my life. And God will bring you from darkness to light. You will begin to see it. You'll begin to understand what it's all about. There will be light in your life. And it says here about Christians too, that we not only come from darkness to light, we were once not a people. We're all like that. We once didn't belong to God. We were once just a scattered, random, lost group of people. But now we're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. You see, this is addressed to Christians, but it's something very important in there. Once you hadn't received mercy, once... You were in confusion. You felt condemned about the things you've done wrong. Things you wished you could do right, you couldn't do right. And the things you didn't want to do, you did do. And you felt just like helpless. And and the Bible would say sinful. You just felt confused. You didn't even live up to your own standards. But the Gospel says you can receive mercy. You can be forgiven for every last thing you ever did wrong. Things that only God knows washed completely clean. You receive. That's wonderful. You can receive mercy in and through Jesus Christ. And we as Christians are simply people who were once not a people, once in confusion and darkness, who've now received mercy and come into the light. We're not clever. It's just God's been so good. And you can enjoy exactly the same goodness. You too can come out of darkness into light, can receive mercy and can know that you belong to God. If you want to do that this morning, please come and see me after we've worshipped the Lord or at some point at the end of the service. We have tea and coffee over there for all our visitors. You might just want to go into the tea and coffee area and talk to someone, either like myself or someone in the orange T-shirt. They're very noticeable and we almost know that and smile about it, but at least you'll find them and talk to them. But actually you need to do something about it this morning rather than just go away because you too can come into the light and find mercy through Jesus Christ.